As we continue in John, we are coming to the final days of Jesus' life on earth. We are entering the portion where now Jesus is headed towards the cross. And it's fitting because uh, this actually is paralleling the season of Lent. If you know, I, Wednesday we had an Ash Wednesday service, and, and Lent is the seven weeks leading up to where the church historically has reflected on the fact that we are dust, uh, that we are from the dust, and to dust we will return. That's our, the stark reality of our lives, that we will, we are finite, we will fade, we're mortal. And it's in the midst of that, that it's fitting that we are paralleling that with this time of Jesus headed towards the cross. And reflecting on how Jesus is God who has entered the dust. See, he, he does more than just suffering on the cross. What we're going to see in the coming weeks over about, the, uh, what, next month and a half, we're going to see how Jesus also suffers on his way to the cross. We're going to see how Jesus suffers some of the deepest, most painful human realities, realities of a fallen world. And we're going to see how Jesus provides a redemption. He provides life in the midst of those very realities. And so this week, what we're going to be looking at first is the reality of betrayal. Betrayal. The dictionary definition is this. It's an act of exposing one's country, a group, or a person to danger by treacherously giving information to an enemy or to be disloyal to Betrayal is one of life's most painful, disorienting, humiliating experiences. You may have experienced betrayal in a variety of ways. You may have experienced it in a variety of relationships. It can happen with spouses. It can happen with friends. It can happen with neighbors. It can happen with bosses or employees. It can happen with peers. It can happen with professors. It can happen in any relationship, in any phase of life, in any place, at any time. But how should we respond and, and how do we respond in a way that we don't just become increasingly bitter people? People who are just filled with rage, with anger, with these situations that just kind of, kind of like a cloud, they just follow us around the rest of our lives. See, the bad news is that betrayal is a part of this life. But the good news is that Jesus experienced betrayal, and in it, he offers us a path to life through it. Today, we're going to follow Jesus as he experienced betrayal by one of his closest friends, Judas. And I, I emphasize that statement, one of his closest friends, because we tend to forget 
When we read this, we, we all know, right, we have the caricatures of Judas, that Judas is the bad guy, Judas is the betrayer, Judas, we know this because we know from hindsight, looking back, how we should think of Judas. In fact, when I was growing up, my, my grandmother, she was, she was Catholic, and so she never, she, her worst phrase, when something would happen, she'd say this, she'd go, Judas priest, right? Like, she would always, like, something would happen, go, Judas priest, Judas priest, like, she'd take Judas's name in vain, right? Like, like because Judas, like, Judas is known as as the bad guy, right? None of us probably, if you know you're having a boy, you don't go, I know a great name, honey. Let's name our child Judas, right? She's like, why don't we just name him Adolf while we're at it, right? Like no one names their child Judas. We do this because we know how the story ends. And so we kind of have this caricature in our mind of Judas as this big, bad guy. But we forget that Judas was one of Jesus's closest friends. Jesus closely mentored him. Jesus knew him for years. Judas literally had the, he had the credit card, the, the checkbook for the whole group. Everyone trusted him. They had spent years together. They laughed together. They cried together. They shared about their life stories. They stayed up late just talking about, about what's going on in the world. They were good friends. And we forget that when we come to this point where Judas, though, betrays him. In fact, he leverages that proximity, that intimacy, that closeness, that trust to betray Jesus. And that's why this speaks so deeply to our experience because it's so similar. Our betrayals come. Judas is like our best friend. Judas is like the spouse. Judas is like the church member. Judas is the neighbor you've had for 10 years when they turn and they betray you financially, emotionally, socially, through gossip, whatever it may be. And Jesus shows us here in the midst of the one of the darkest experiences of being a human being in this fallen world, betrayal, what it looks like to find life, and not only life, but to also find a sense of justice in the midst of it. So there's much that speaks to our experience of betrayal and Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judah. What we're going to look at first is we're going to unpack the betrayal. We're going to look at the betrayal and how does this help us understand to understand, you could say, the contours of what betrayal is and what we experience, why it's so painful and disorienting, humiliating, and whatnot. Then we're going to look at the response, the response to betrayal, and we're going to see two different kinds of justice in action in response. First, we're going to see a justice that kills, and then we're going to see, second, a justice that heals. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we Lord, I'm, I'm just, right now I pause and I realize how in a room with this many, the different kinds of experiences of betrayal that we bring in here. We each know our experiences of this. Lord, we know where we have betrayed. And Lord, you know each of those situations, everyone involved, the timing of it, the impact of it, the collateral damage of it, you know all those details intimately. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have, in your word, spoken to this experience, this dark, 
painful, humiliating experience. And, and Lord, we ask that this morning, I, I ask that wherever it may be in each of our lives where we need healing, where we need to forgive, and where we need to seek forgiveness, Lord, would you guide us? Spirit, would you bring home to our hearts, apply to where, Lord, we have just an icy block in our soul. Would you melt it? Lord, would you heal us? Would you help us to experience your forgiveness, your grace, the power of your blood, Jesus, in new and deeper and profound ways? Lord, it, we sometimes doubt that we can be removed. There are some things beyond the reach of your, your work, Christ. But your work is high, your work is, reaches to the depths, it reaches to the, the breadth of human sin and pain and death. And Lord, would you show us how true that is this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the betrayal. I want to walk through, again, the text. I want to unpack some of the parallels, the, the things that happen here that, that help us understand what happens when we experience betrayal when we betray someone else and why it's so painful. And as I do, just one of the things that I love when reading through Scripture, Scripture at times will give us, there's different genres, and at times it'll give us just kind of statements and here are things you do and here are things you don't do and here are truths and, and, and facts and, and data points that you need to know. But Scripture also comes to us, God records how these things happen in real human interactions, and that's what we have here. And when, when that happens, oftentimes what I find so refreshing about Scripture is it doesn't gloss over these things, sweep them under the rug as far as the depths and heights of human experience, but instead addresses them. In other words, the Bible's real. And that's so incredibly refreshing. So as I do that, just that's what I'm going to be walking through. So look at verse 1. First, we have kind of the setting here. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book, Brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So there's, there's really two, right here with the setting, kind of signals, uh, kind of things that if you know your Old Testament, if you're reading this in the first century, two things that would have immediately probably would have jumped out at you. One is this setting of the Brook Kidron, where they, they uh, cross this, this valley that's right outside of Jerusalem. I have a map here that captures it. Outside to the southeast side, there's this brook, and you go through the valley, and this would have been outside the city. One of the significances of this specific geographical location and the idea of Jesus crossing this is that there is an earlier betrayal that happens in Scripture. I think it's 2 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, <laughs> like he doesn't know his Bible, 2 Samuel uh, 15, where David, King David, is betrayed by his son Absalom. And when he's betrayed by his son Absalom, he has to cross the brook Hidron on his way out of the city. In other words, this is the point of no return. This is a place, it's capturing something that's happened well before. And it's saying this is a reality that happens again and again and again in a fallen world. That betrayal is, is part of this world. It's nothing new. It's nothing novel. It's hardwired into the fall. Uh, but then there's another obvious allusion here when it says where there was a garden. There was a garden. 
Here we have Jesus returning to the place where it all began. Returning to the place where the first betrayal happened. Where man betrayed God. All of humanity in Adam fell. All of humanity have the same nature. At the end of the day, to trade God in for our own ability to pursue being God in his place. And so Jesus returns to this place of the garden. As we return to the garden, we're reminded of this place where the serpent whispered. Did God really say? Whispered and tempted to pursue our own way. And so here in this setting, what we have here is we have a place where betrayal has happened before. We have here a place where the betrayal first began. But it's not going to be just Judas. It's all of us. But then in continuing in verse 2, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. This verse for me kind of, I guess the word would be kind of broke me emotionally, shattered me. And here's what I, meant, I mean by that is when I read this, I realized, why did John include this? And it's because betrayal often happens in places that are familiar. The most painful acts of betrayal happen places where there are shared memories. The deepest and darkest betrayals happen in bedrooms. The deepest and darkest Betrayals happen when your car's just sitting in the driveway. Why would somebody here violate this place and break into my car? The deepest betrayals happen in family homes where abuse that's unfathomable happens, where it should be a place of safety, a place of love, a place of nurturing, and it's violated. See, one of the reasons where betrayal hurts so incredibly deeply is that it takes these places where it happens, is often places and in dynamics that should be safe, that should be kept sacred and holy and protected. And it's twisted and it's leveraged and it's used. It's deeply disorienting. It's as if you take the fabric, if, if you're sexually abused in a house where family members live, it takes what should be this place of nurturing, and it takes this thing that is the part of the basic fabric of reality as a human being, being in a world where you are vulnerable because you're a finite being, and it takes it and it shreds it. Where can I be safe? Where can I know love that doesn't violate me? Where can I have a place where there is trust and I can be vulnerable? And what it says to your soul is it's nowhere. Jesus shared memories here with Judas and his disciples. Can you imagine what's being said here? This is a place they often went. This is the place they laughed. They shared their stories. They, they, they cried with one another. And Judas knew they'd be there and he's vulnerable. Let's get him. Betrayal is so deeply painful because it takes some of the places that are most 
precious, most valuable, most sacred in our lives, and it violates them. Have you experienced that? It's so incredibly dizzying, disorienting. Almost makes your life this disassociating, floating presence in the world because you're afraid to touch down and attach anywhere lest you be burned. Jesus experienced this. Continuing then in verse 3, it says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. What's interesting here is there was no need. Now, in John's Gospel 1, whenever somebody comes to somebody at night, we saw this in chapter uh, 2 with... uh, Uh, Nicodemus, and and these different times they come at night, and it's usually signaling there's unbelief at work here. That's what, how John usually juxtaposes daytime and nighttime, so they're coming with lamps and and torches because it's nighttime, and so there's this unbelief that's happening here. Judas's heart has completely turned, but also what's happening here is this completely irrational idea that Jesus would have ever fought them. They're coming at night to catch him. They're coming tonight to catch him. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's lounging and sitting back. He's not expecting it. Let's get him. We have to get him at this point. And there's no reason to actually think that about Jesus. There's nothing in the Gospels where you would think we got to catch him there. Jesus would be unreasonable. And so what does this mean about betrayal? Betrayal reveals that someone has believed the absolute worst in us. Usually betrayal can only happen, I can only betray you if I can make you this caricature of evil, this exaggerated sin, this this is all you are, all you will ever be. And Judas has made Jesus into something he completely is not. And one of the most painful things is realizing that someone has created a caricature of you that isn't real of you and made you into this personification of evil in some way that is outsized of the actual realities. Betrayal reveals that someone has believed the worst in us and Judas is at this point not looking at the Jesus he's known who has never lifted a finger in violence against anyone. And he says, let's get him at night. Then in verses 4 and 5, it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, Judas, notice here, is being a complete coward. Judas is standing in the back. Judas is the one who went and betrayed Jesus. Judas is the one who put this whole thing into into movement. Judas is the one who went to other people and stirred the pot, took the money, and now is coming to sell his friend for a couple of coins, betray him. And when they come, he's standing at the back, just kind of not facing Jesus, not making eye contact. One of the most painful things about betrayal is that it's often... It's mediated through all the relationships in our relational web. 
Often by the time it shows up and you're realizing you're being betrayed, there's usually kind of a, a work that's been gone on where they're going and they're kind of poisoning the well and making sure that everyone else agrees with their narrative about you. In other words, it usually has an element of gossip, an element of slander. It pollutes the entire web of shared relationships. So it's mediated by allegations. It's usually facilitated by lies and exaggerations told to others. Socially, it's crushing. Verses 6 and 7 then, when Jesus said to them, I am he. Watch this. Imagine Jesus has had these I am statements throughout the gospel where he's obviously alluding to God's statement, I am that I am. And he says, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is saying, I am he. And they hear in his statement, they fall back because just with that statement, I am, coming out of the mouth of God himself, they fall to the ground. It's completely revealed to them in that moment who he is. If they couldn't see it clearly before, now they've experienced it. Imagine walking up to someone. Uh, you're, we're just looking for Jesus of Nazareth. You're Jesus of Nazareth, right? And he goes, I am he. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He specifically says, I am he, to make that statement. And when it happens, a force hits you. And you would realize in that moment that everything that this man has said and done, everything everyone else has said is true. But what happens when we're betrayed is that we refuse to acknowledge what is good and true of them. See, on one hand, betrayal reveals that they've believed the worst in us, but then there's also this other side where even when presented with other evidence, we refuse to acknowledge what is good and true. And these men, in encountering Jesus in that voice and that reality hitting them, still refuse to acknowledge. The result, we'll come back to what's in between, but the result then in 12 through 14 is filled with irony. This is the Son of God. This is God himself who is being betrayed. And then in verses 12 and through 14, it says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. How, when you read this and you realize this is the God of the universe, and they've come, and Judas goes, bind him. And they bind him, and Jesus allows himself to be bound. The irony of the God of the universe allowing that to happen. But not only that, then it says they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. They're going to take him in the next few weeks, we're going to see, before the high priest, the very men on earth who were called to mediate the presence of God. And they're going to hold him under judgment. The irony. And then lastly, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. <laughs> irony upon irony upon irony. 
John is saying here that there is a betrayal that God will bring a redemption in. But here's what I want to say before we move on. What Have you ever experienced betrayal? Do any of these dynamics, the, the kind of social pollution, the gossiping, the slander, realizing the full force of that, I would say especially in our day with social media, that's something that can happen like that by the millions. Is it that places have been violated? Is it that there was just the refusal to believe anything good? You became a caricature. Any of the things here that the betrayal at lands home, just the absolute manipulation of trust. And in the midst of that, before moving on, what I would say is what's being said here is Jesus, this, your Savior, he is a sympathetic high priest who knows what you experience. Jesus doesn't just come down from on high on these things, but Jesus came down from on high and entered the dust. And it's sympathetic. He's gone before us. One of the beauties of the gospel is the fact that God himself entered the fallen realities and pains of this world. And in it, in suffering it, then he says, I am bringing a remedy, a healing for exactly that. Now, with that, we have to look at how do we respond? Because we have this beautiful truth here that the Christian God, I mean, think about this. The Christian God is the only one who willingly, uniquely entered in to human experience in order to save us in the way that Christ has. The full spectrum of human experience. But how do we respond and as we respond, how do we find justice? What, because when we're betrayed, we know that things need to be righted. Well, there's two kinds of justice we can pursue. Justice that kills first. Uh, Peter does what's pretty, I think, makes sense given the circumstance. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So he does, obviously, what would you want to do? I'm, I'll come back to this, but I remember the, one of the moments when I most experienced in my life, because Peter's seeing Jesus betrayed. I remember, okay, I'm going to share some personal data here. I remember the moment when I found out my mother, my senior year of high school, we found out she had HIV what eventually took her life. And I found out that she got that HIV from her boyfriend who was sleeping around. And he got it while sleeping around and gave it to her. And I will tell you in that moment, I would have cut off more than his ear, if you know what I mean. There was just anger. And see, so what happens when we feel that betrayal like, guys, this is real. This is the real human violating, bringing death, tearing apart families, tearing apart generations, tearing apart civilizations kind of stuff. And when that happens, there's something in us that doesn't just say, well, let's just sweep it under the rug. Let's get some sentimental Jesus in here, some sentimental religion, and let's just move on. No, this has to be dealt with because what happens is we want to, in that point, to enact justice, and that's good. 
There should be justice for injustice. But often the justice that we go after is this retributive justice, retributive justice. It's this tit for tat, right? You hit me, I hit you. You cheat on me, I cheat on you. You hurt me, I hurt you. You slander me, I slander you. You take me down, I take you down. You put me down here, I will pull you down. This is what Peter does. It makes sense. You, I have sleepless nights. You will have sleepless nights. I have pain and this bitterness. You will know that pain and that bitterness. It makes complete sense, right? It's natural. I have bankruptcy. You'll have bankruptcy. I'm lonely. You'll be lonely. I have physical strain in my body. You will experience that physical strain in your body. It's coming out of me naturally right now explaining it. You destroy me, I'll destroy you. Because we assume one of the things in this that our pain itself makes our response righteous. Often because it is fair, it balances the scales of justice in one sense, the scales of pain, at least you could say. I should say, instead of the scales of justice, it's the scales of pain. But while Peter's response, we could say is, I'll say it's fair. It's not healing, though. While it's fair, it's not, it doesn't bring about healing. In fact, if it adds more fuel to the fire, it's going to breed more death. It probably would just lead to everyone probably in this scene, half of them dead. In our world, we, we know this kind of justice, right? Like, this is playground justice. We all know this. Our kids right now, I could be explaining to them, they're like, I get it, right? Like, you know playground, like, you took my toy, right? And so then you're like, they're like, what happened? You're like, well, they took my toy. So I ran them over with my bike, right? Like, you're <laughs> like, like, we get this from a young age. Like, this is natural. Retaliatory justice. And then as we age, the thing is, these things, and as these things get more complex and they become more global, then this, this is just what escalates in the geopolitical strife. Like, take this from the individual level to how this affects families and generations, geopolitical strife and civil wars and economic sanctions and genocide. Individual retaliatory justice metastasizes into systemic and even global war, famine, genocide. Now we see it on social media where immediately you see these dynamics. We know how this plays out, but let me ask you this. Do you find yourself in the midst of the bitterness or if you have someone in your mind right now that you were so angry at and you've been carrying bitterness towards for years. It could be a parent, it could be a child, it could be a friend, it could be an ex, it could be a boss, coworker, friend, that you're carrying this bitterness and this anger. Do you find your way, yourself continuously responding in a way that kills? Jesus responds to Peter in verse, the first half of verse 11. He says, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Jesus says the first thing that he says to Peter is, put your sword in its sheath. It's actually a very practical verse here. When you think about the times that we're betrayed and we want to take the sword, we want to cut the person's ear off, which by the way, Peter must be a good swordsman. I was actually like, hey, good hit, right? But he's like, I've been waiting for you to use my Jedi skills. But we use 
But in that moment, God says, put it in the sheath. And here's the question for you. In the midst of the bitterness and the ways you've been betrayed, the thing that's helpful is go, what's your weapon of choice? What's your sword? Is it your words, you know, written or spitten, right? Is it your fist? Is it social retaliation? Is it to gossip? Is it to slander? Is it to, like, you know, kind of social sanctions and what you kind of work the room to manipulate? And then what Jesus says is, are you willing to put that in its sheath? If it's words for you, are you willing to not say the words? If it's social sanctions and manipulation, are you willing to not go there? Put it in the sheath. If it's getting online and writing about somebody and ruining the reputation, are you willing to delete that post and not do it? Jesus is saying before you go to what's retributive and could very much feel fair and like it balances the scales of pain, what Jesus is saying is that will only bring more death. It's a pursuit of justice, it is, and it will feel good in a moment, but justice, but the death will continue. What is the sword for you? What is the weapon? And what is putting it in its sheath? Now, Jesus, I would say with this, when I, I would say, when I say these things, guys, it's hard. I'm not like coming down with this sermon and being like, well, let me tell you how I've always done it perfectly. Believe me, I struggle with this just as much as any of you. And I say, this is hard. So I resonate with Peter. In fact, I would say, I think it's, I think it's actually impossible to do what Jesus is ultimately calling him to. Unless Jesus does what he does next. Because what Jesus is going to do is he's going to point him to where justice is ultimately served. Jesus isn't going to sweep it under the rug. Jesus isn't going to make light of it. Jesus isn't going to just be sentimental. Jesus is going to show us that justice and betrayal does demand blood. The last point, justice that heals. Look at the second half of verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus' words are not merely a rebuke of Peter or a proof text for pacifism. That's a whole nother topic. They are, though, a revelation of the kind of justice we are in need of. What Jesus is pointing to here is what's going to happen on the cross, and this is a where the rubber hits the road in the midst of betrayal. Practical, what do I do and how do I find justice? response. I remember, again, I raged with bitterness and anger and hatred for several years towards that boyfriend of my mother's. It consumed me. I didn't see how it affected so many other things in my life, but Ooh, I became somebody who laughed a lot less. I became someone who was quick to anger. I was somebody who was very guarded. And I remember having a discipler who sat me down, and they noticed this, and we started talking, and I just came out with this whole thing. And I remember they, they looked at me, and they said, have you ever considered that you actually have? Like, what, what do you want? And I was like, I want his blood. I want him to die. I want him to suffer like she's suffering. I want everyone around him who was a part of in facility, I want them to suffer. Just keep going and ripple effects. I want them all. I want blood. 
Have you ever had that? Sin deserves blood. We should be angry. We should say that's injustice. We should say that's wrong. We should say it's bad. We should say it deserves death because it's bringing death into my life in a real literal way. And I remember what he said to me is, here's the thing, the justice of the cross says that you have it. You want blood? You have it. Only it's the blood of Christ. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He doesn't say, Peter, sweep it under the rug. He doesn't say, Peter, this isn't a big deal. He doesn't say, Peter, what they're doing is fine, and actually they interpret it as a good thing, but I'm telling you, like, you know, truth is relative and morality is wrong. No, he doesn't do any of those games. He says, Peter, I am about to shed blood for exactly this. Jesus doesn't just stuff, say stuff your response. Jesus doesn't say to just forget about it. He redirects us to where it's fully satisfied, to the wrath that he absorbed. See, Jesus experienced more than betrayal. He became the sin of betrayal on the cross. Jesus took all of our betrayals, all of the betrayals committed against us, and he suffered them. And that is why only Jesus can tell us and lead us to forgive, because only Jesus actually provides the blood that takes sins like betrayal seriously and meets the demands of justice. Now, I should say here as a side note, Peter, this does not mean that there aren't consequences for betrayal. One of the things about redemptive justice is that it also pursues restitution. Here's what I'd say. Here's what I don't want to be heard. If you have betrayed someone and it costs them financially, Praise God if you found forgiveness and they have forgiven you. You also need to take whatever steps are within your power to fix what you wronged. If you have gossiped about someone, you've slandered someone, praise God if there is forgiveness and that removes the bitterness, you also need to go to every single person that you said that to and tell them that you were wrong. You need to undo it as much as you can. If you have posted something online slandering someone, you need to post a retraction and own it and try to get word out there. When we sin, there is collateral damage, and it, forgiveness does not say that that collateral damage and those consequences go unserved. You abuse someone, you do jail time. That does not mean you're removed from the forgiveness of God, but God has ordained authorities and different systems of justice in order to hold society together to uphold the good. And so none of this is saying if you've been betrayed or abused that you don't go and seek out those consequences while also then allowing God to do the work in your heart that only he can do to give you that place where ultimate justice is served. But in Jesus, we see God's forgiving heart. Not only did Jesus experience betrayal and forgive, Jesus is going to go to the cross and cry, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. 
And it's going back to that guarded reality of all of these people in the crowd. Yes, Judas got the whole thing going in motion, but Father, they, the crowds, all the people where we can hear our mocking voice in the crowd, calling out, rejecting Christ with our lives. He says, you've betrayed me. You would have to pay with your blood. But I have made a way and I've applied my blood and I forgive you. He takes on the guilt of his betrayers and receives the wrath of God for betrayal that he did not commit. And in Jesus, our betrayals and the betrayals committed against us have received God's wrath. You want blood? You want justice? What more could you seek? The reason why this is here is because Jesus wants to set us free from bitterness and anger and being captive to this deadly cycle of trying to make someone else pay for their sins when their blood is never enough. What forgiveness is at the end of the day is saying there may be consequences, all these things we need to work through. Trust may be gone for a very long time and needs to be worked back. But I will not, here's what forgiveness is. It's saying I will not hold you you do not have to pay for your sins with your blood. I will apply Christ's blood to your sin. And I will not kill you in my heart. I will not kill you in my discussions. I will not kill you because what will happen is the rest of your life, just like the blood of bulls and goats, it will never be satisfactory. There will never be a long enough prison term. There will never be enough in this world of justice enacted in order to satisfy the consequences of that sin because it's death. And that's why Jesus says, I will satisfy that. Then pursue also in this world whatever outcomes need to be pursued. But I want to set you free from that so that you don't, the rest of your life, just rage and rage and rage with bitterness. What does this look like? I want to end with reading the testimony. Rachel Den Hollander, who's a gymnast, some of you may know her name. She got a few minutes to address her abuser in a courtroom. She's a Christian, and she was one of the girls at Penn State when, what was it, Larry Nasser, I think was the name, when he had, he was the former U.S. gymnast uh, trainer or doctor, and he had sexually abused many of the girls. And during his sentencing, she said this, and I want you to hear how this is dripping with just fierce demand for justice yet forgiveness. And this is such a beautiful model for us. She said, you have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires, a man defined by his daily choices, repeatedly defeat that selfish and selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others, and the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it cost me. The truth of sin, the truth of the cross, justice and mercy, kiss. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read that Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. Forgiveness is a choice we can and we must make. 
You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things. As if good deeds can erase what you have done, it comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what we have seen in this courtroom today. In the Bible you carry, it says that it is better for a stone to be thrown around the neck and you thrown into a fire than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds. Not making light of anything here. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where there should be None should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Sin taken seriously, pain and death taken seriously, but also the death and the blood of Christ applied seriously. Didn't, this is in the context of where he's going to jail the rest of his life, and he should. But also this woman does not have to live with bitterness. That is the freedom of the gospel. I'm inviting the band. I told him to come up during that time. If you're wondering, why are people approaching him? The freedom of the gospel is to face betrayal, call sin, sin, and find the satisfaction of justice and be free to forgive. Freedom from bitterness. Jesus bore the bitterness of betrayal so you would not be consumed by it, so you can pursue justice at the cross and find freedom. In the Lent devotional that we have, it has this reflection from the other day, and I'm going to read it to end. The path of betrayal has been trod before by God's people. It will be trod again in your life. Yet in the midst of life's deepest betrayals, God is on the path to forgiveness. Have you experienced betrayal that has turned your heart bitter? The good news of the gospel is that there is one who can sympathize with your pain. And he also makes payment. Anthem, do not live in bitterness. Do not live enslaved to anger and raging. But pursue justice at the cross. Find freedom there. Find a fierce conviction for sin being sin and Christ then being Christ.